Let's again, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time together and for bringing us here uh, to study the screw tape letters, to see ourselves in the pages herein, and to help us to uh, struggle through with the help of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So I made a comment before we lost signal uh, that we have a special guest with us today, and that, would be, that would be the, uh, the first bishop of Rome. His name is St. Peter. St. Peter is this uh, gentleman here who has a, a poppy seed <laughs> indicating that he is, in fact, the Anglican version of St. Peter of Rome. You know, he's the bishop of Rome, and he, uh, if you're wondering why St. Peter is sitting there, it's because I felt like putting him there. He, he was actually, when I got to Trinity, Red ba- Trinity Vero, excuse me, this parish, as rector, I had a very Spartan office, but one of the things I had, which was a cool thing, was this statue of St. Peter on a table in the office. So either it was a gift from my former rector, uh, Father uh, Jacobs, mm. or Father Jacobs didn't like it and left it for me. I don't know which is the case. <laughs> but St. Peter, is, uh, he's very quiet today, but he is joining us for our Screwtape Letters session today. So, Peter, thanks for being here. And, uh, you know, it's funny because St. Peter, if you know in Scripture, he's a pretty ornery guy. That very outspoken. Very outspoken. Yeah, oh yeah. And, and he's clearly uh, in a moment of reflection and contemplation. So, uh, that's <laughs> All right, so we're going to start with uh, chapter 24. Yes, indeed. I'm going to go ahead and read the summary, and then we'll jump right in. So, uh, this is from the discussion questions handout for week seven. Letter 24. In this letter, Screwtape seeks to once again have the patient full fall unknowingly into a state of pride by exploiting a small flaw in the young, woman, young woman's worldview. While she naively believes that those who are not Christian must be stupid or ridiculous, Screwtape hopes that this will propel the patient to think very much more of himself than is warranted and feel that he is part of an inner circle, excuse me, inner ring by right. Hmm. Um, this was actually a really good chapter, I thought, and they're all good in different ways. This one struck me. Um, I think it's actually, it struck me because I've had experience in the past with people that are Christian. It's very, back up, I have a background in social psychology amongst some other things I studied in the course of my life. And one of the things you notice when you find groups of people is they tend to form what's called in-group and out-group, right? Mm. And so you become a member of a group of people and you identify with that cadre, that cohort of people, and you assume that you guys are right and everybody else is wrong, right? Oh, yeah. And it can be anything. It can be the frat you're in. It can be the political party you're a member of. It can be your race. It can be your all sorts of things. It does, it's just kind of human nature that we do that. Uh, it's, a, it's, almost, um, it's almost unavoidable. Yeah. And not even just wrong, right? They could be you know, ignorant and, or, or maliciously deceptive. You know, I mean, it's not just wrong, like in error. There's no charity at all extended outside the group is right. what it seems like. Yeah, it could time. be. Yeah, but, so. but the idea being that people tend to think of their in-group with much broader concept of, of personhood than the out-group people mm-hmm. are, well, it's just those filthy fill-in-the-blanks. Oh, yeah. Right? Right, right, right Lee? Right. We were just talking about that the other day. So anyway, mm-hmm. so, so what, what, what I think what Screwtape's driving at here is you want to encourage in, your, in the patient, once he's become a Christian, okay, you can't avoid that, uh, you can't change that once he's there. So the, mm. next, the next best thing to do is make him, um, make him think of himself as a Christian because they are smarter, essentially, than everybody else. And he yeah. says here um, uh, that the outsiders who do not share this belief, Christianity, are really too stupid and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I found that really interesting. Do you think that's true? People do that? Well, I think, I think, they, I think they absolutely do as Christians. Uh, and I think even now... 
with the advent of uh, social media and even the internet, you see all of this, you know, feedback loops that you kind of get caught into where, yeah. uh, you know, and it's, it's interesting. I looked this up because I was really curious about this. In 1996, before things really came full bloom as they are now, MIT researchers warned, and I'm going to quote here, uh, that individuals empowered to screen out material that does not conform to their existing preferences are, go are going to form virtual cliques. Mm -hmm. And they had a ridiculous term for it. They called it a cyber, al cyber alkanization, which is, they're MIT guys, right? Like so no offense, but. Like balkanization with cyber? Yeah. Um, but, that, but you know, that's memorable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I mean, there is that idea, right, of, of uh, in our search histories and everything, Google just shows us what we already like and agree with, or caricatures of the people, or straw men or caricatures of people who disagree with us. So we're never actually debating somebody from a different perspective that's knowledgeable. Right. We're debating the worst, most ignorant person and feeling superior about it. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed that. It's yeah, all and over. I, and I think the reality is that is endemic to every person. Mm -hmm. It is. It's not just a matter of Christians or anything. Every person falls into mm -hmm. that trap. And so, of course, what Screwtape is doing is, okay, let's take this, this aspect of human nature and apply it to someone's faith in order to mm -hmm. make them feel prideful of their faith mm -hmm. and contemptuous of those who don't share it. Mm -hmm. It's a really dangerous thing. I, I, you do see this, you see it in everything, or you see it in all different groups of people, but when you see it in the church, it's particularly, I don't know, it's particularly bad because mm -hmm. Christianity is all about grace and, mm -hmm. and not as, it, you know, you're not a Christian because you earn it or you deserve it. You're a Christian because Jesus died for you and thereby makes you able to receive his grace, right? So Christianity, I think maybe uniquely, is the only thing which you can obtain without any merit of your own. Mm -hmm. it's, it is probably the only thing of which you really can never be prideful. Yeah, you can't earn it. You're you not a Christian because you're smarter than other people or whatever other things that we tell ourselves. And, you know, it's interesting to me that her her sin in this, you know, he kind of brushed off as being naive yeah. and wanted to push it to something else. There's this interesting, there's two terms that kind of actually differentiate between where she is and where he wants the patient to go in his spiritual pride. Right. Where she is, it's actually called um, an epistemic bubble. And this is, this is just what happens when insiders aren't exposed to people from the opposite side. Right. So it's like, you know, you, you, all you ever do is live in this bubble, um, you know, and, and so, but you're not, it's not that you're casting aspersions intentionally or knowingly. An echo chamber is the, is the kind of the deeper form, the deeper sin. And that's when insiders come to distrust everybody on the outside. Mm -hmm. So it moves from ignorance, again, to that the malicious distrust of you. It's, oh, you're one of those, therefore I have to watch out around you. Mm. And I think that's kind of the place where, you know, she's just ignorant in, in this circumstance, right? right. It says, what, uh, the element of ignorance and naivete and, and all this is so large and the element of spiritual pride so small. Right that he, uh, Screwtape says it gives us little hope of the girl herself. So that's that movement into you know, ignorance, I guess, into spiritual pride. That it's interesting, about. too. Yeah, that, like Screwtape is under no, pre, under no confusion that the girl is going to fall prey to this type of sin because mm -hmm. she's much more, as he says, spiritually advanced than the, than the patient mm -hmm. is. But, he, but Screwtape can, or what's the, what's the girl's, her demon is what, Slim Trumpet or Slum Trumpet? Yeah, something like something that. Something like that. And um, Slum Trumpet. I wonder where I got that. I know people have done studies on this. Who knows? But anyway, that, that the patient can observe her thoughts and behaviors, but he, being less spiritually mature, might actually be able to brought, be brought to a place which he calls here spiritual pride. Mm -hmm. that, he says here, um, uh, you get him, this is the 
uh, second paragraph. Get him, can you, this is Screwtape talking to Wormwood, can you get him to imitate this defect in his mistress and to exaggerate it until what was venial in her becomes, becomes in him the strongest and most beautiful of the vices. I love this. Mm. Spiritual pride. Mm -hmm. It's toxic. Mm -hmm. And it's really common, actually. Mm -hmm. um, when I first, one of the reasons I was sort of turned off by Christians, to be perfectly blunt, when I was younger, I mean, I was ignorant too, I didn't know any better, uh, but I, the people that I did, that stuck with me, that resonated with me, were the ones that I found to be prideful and hip, mm -hmm. hip, you know, hip, um, being hypocrites. Sure. I never saw the people, because I, I didn't want to, yeah. <laughs> the ones that actually were Christians that were actually graceful and loving, uh, they, the ones that I remembered were the ones that fit my preconceived notion of what a Christian sure. would be. And so I think it's important for us to, as Christians to be aware that to be prideful in our spirituality is, is just, not only is it wrong, hmm. it's just, it's toxic. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. C.S. Lewis uh, has a collection of essays uh, titled The Weight of Glory, which, as you know, is one of his. And one of those essays it, it hit me when I was in high school really hard. It's called The Inner Ring. And what he does in this essay is he takes all the things we're talking about, but, you know, spins a lot more pages than this on it. And he says, you know, this whole idea of an inner ring, he says, he kind of marks it this way. He says it's marked by a particular slang, nicknames or illusions, yeah. right? Like, you can call me that, but if somebody else does, you kind of give them a weird look, like, you know, who are you? Right. Um, it says those inside just call it we or all the sensible people in this place, and those outside call it them or those guys or that gang. Right. We all have different rings, right? You know, the things that I want to be a part of, the groupings that I want to be in, are way different than other people's groupings. And you see that, you know, in high school and college especially, right, where you have your own little, you know, you know the we call jocks anymore, but the athletes, the surfers, the, you know, the uh, indie crowd or whatever it is. The what? Indie crowd? Scene? Uh, what would you call it? Somebody help me out here. Yeah, Alex knows. Uh, he knows what I'm talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I guess you call it maybe artists or bohemians or something. Um, yeah. You know, and he, but he says about it, I'm, what he says about it in this essay is it's not that it's an e the existence of them is evil. It's, it's unavoidable. But it's right. the desire that to be drawn into one. Right. You know, because once you're drawn in, you make it that much harder for anybody else to enter after you if you feel like you've you know, earned this prestige. Right. You get bored of it quickly because they're not genuine friendships. You know, they're just... You know, like you, you know, and, and what is it about um, not wanting to be a p part of any club that would have me? That sort of mentality. Yeah. And uh, and you know, and you sh people shake off friendships or do really terrible things to to be a part of these inner groups, and it's a drive for a lot of people. I mean, have you seen that? And oh, yeah. people you've interacted. You know, with? I, was, I was thinking about this just a minute ago when you were mentioning. Uh, I my my ascending church was a parish in the diocese of Pennsylvania, along Philadelphia, on the main line, which is. Route 30, which goes from the city out to the, out to the suburbs. And the main line is a very wealthy part of the country. There's a lot of Episcopal churches. It's basically as blue blood as it gets, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, the church that I went to, I'll never forget, we were actually at the bar across the street having a drink after evening prayer or something with mm. a bunch of us. And we were talking about how the diocese wasn't really, the Episcopal church wasn't really growing. And another priest said to me, well, you know, uh, everybody who is an Episcopal, Anybody, everybody who should be an Episcopalian already is. <laughs> and he was laughing. He said it as a joke, but, yeah. you know, that's actually not too far from the truth sometimes. You know, that people sort of look at, maybe not so much in Florida, but yeah. up in that neck of the woods and on the main line, it was very much a, uh, well, I'm an Episcopalian and I'm of this social strata and uh, sort of thing. So yeah. that was strange. It, 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 is, it is strange. And, you know, 
to see the type of stereotypes that Christians believe to be true based on what they've taught is, is kind of harmful. Like you, you touched on it earlier, but you know, people believe that Christians are, Christians tell themselves that they're happier or more moral or more educated than everybody else in the hoi polloi or whatever you, you know, whatever you call hoi it. Hoi is uh, Greek for the people. Yeah. And, and you know, that's just not, that's just not always, that's just not always the case. I mean, Christians aren't always happy and like, that Ned Flanders thing isn't true? No. And what's interesting, right, they've done, they've done religious... That's shocking to me. <laughs> Sorry. It took me a second. I was like, Ned oh, Flanders, I can't believe it. <laughs> well, because you know, they've done studies on, on, on religion and happiness, and they have correlated re- people who are active religious believers to happiness, yes. but it's not specific to Christianity. Right. So if that's, you know, if that's the, you know, if that's what you're going for, that's not, you know, this isn't the quickest access route for that. So right. Right. anyway... Any questions from the group here, the in our vast studio audience here? I thought it was. Uh, what do you think, Paul? You know, the, the, the point is so important to Lewis about this exclusive inner ring because this bridges back to an earlier, one of the earlier letters where he talks about factions. Which, hmm. you know, you yeah, that's right. Factions, factions. He talks. Mm-hmm. He considers it one of the more critical things I think he wants to get across. Yeah, that's a good point. Paul makes the, the observation that Lewis talked for, in the past in one of the letters, I mm-hmm. forgot which one, about factions. And you're right. Screwtape, the demonic, seems to really like to use factions to divide people, which, of course, Paul talks about, you know, that idea of factionalism in the early church. Mm-hmm. You know, I follow oh, yeah. Apollos, I follow, you know, these different groups. It's human nature. And mm-hmm. it's inevitable, given our fallenness and our brokenness, but Paul makes a good point that Lewis seems to think, and I think he's right, that this is one of the main... Um, weapons that the devil uses against the church to undermine our mission. Hmm. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Anybody else have a comment? We've got some questions in here too, so. Um, what do you think, Father? You want, you have a well, I might, you know, my third question I want to touch on is what posture we as Christians mm-hmm. should adopt toward those who are non-believers. I think that's an important thing for us I, to remember. I agree. Um, you know, and I think, I think ways of, you know, humility is certainly one of them. I mean, you never interact with somebody who doesn't know something that you don't. Right, everyone in the world knows something you don't. Right, um, you know, uh, uh, patience with people uh, in their misunderstandings, giving people the benefit of the doubt, and being charitable when they have a different perspective. Uh, you know, and and it's interesting because if you want to take what we should do as as personal individual Christians and kind of bring it up to the corporate church level, you know, there's a lot of philosophical ways of dealing with it. There's, you know, they all have Asian, right? So they rhyme. But there's domination, right? The church should like we as Christians should just pound the culture into oblivion, domination. There's fortification. We need to just wall up the Benedictine option and just, you know, guard ourselves and stay out of everything. Assimilation is, you know, let's just be one of them and let nothing go between. But none of those, none of those are really satisfying about engagement with culture. It's the idea of service and charity and humility and willingness to bring them along, just like what this family uh, in the chapter does to this young man, because he's not one of them, you know, and, 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 Screwtape makes that very clear, but they bring him along, they're patient with him, they allow him to think that his parroting of their ideas is, you know, he's like, one of them. yeah, he's what, you know, like, like, oh, that's a great point that I made last week, you know, like, but, right. but, but they, but they do sure. a really good job of it, and they don't, they don't seem to be coming from a position of pride. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you have any, what do you think, Bob? You know, I, um, when I, one of my favorite verses in scripture is 1 Peter 3.15, which is, always be prepared, it's Peter, Peter, talking to the church at large, he says, always be prepared to offer a testimony for the hope that is mm-hmm. in you, right? But yeah. do it with gentleness and respect. And I still think, as far as how to deal with a non-believer is, A, I was a non-believer once, and so it's not like a matter of, you know, you're not and I am. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of, you know, how to, 
what did, how did Christ change me and how am I willing to share that with somebody else if they ask me? And am I gonna, am I gonna be a jerk about it? Why would you be a jerk about it? Or am I just gonna be like, hey man, this is what happened, this is where I was, and this is when I met with the Lord, how he, how he changed and is mm-hmm. changing me. And if you look at it from more of a, that perspective, mm-hmm. that's how I think, you, that's how I think it prevents you from spiritual pride. Mm-hmm. In, other words, in other words, you, it's kinda like, you know, if you find a, if you find a, a place that does really good haircuts and you find yeah. somebody who sells really good, I don't know, BLTs, cheesecake, <laughs> the cheesecake, by the way, here has the best BLTs in town, but, but, this, but that's exactly my point, yeah. right? So you're, are you, if it's something which has changed you and you've found, in, it's a cheap comparison, but the idea being that there's something which you really enjoyed and changed you mm-hmm. and affected you positively, you would then go be willing to say to somebody, hey, Lee, man, you're not going to believe this, but cheesecake's got the best BLT in town. Point being, mm-hmm. when Jesus changes you, are you willing to, do you want to like say, hey man, this is, this was really changed me, right? And that's so that's it's like starting a new, a new interest like biking, for example, and then keeping it to yourself. And then if somebody else wanted to, you wouldn't provide any information or help, right? I mean, that's just not how, we're all natural evangelists about the things that we care about. That's a really good point, yes. You know, and we all, we all naturally speak about the things that we would love people to, to come along and engage with. And so, um, you know, and, and Christianity is no different in that way. Indeed. And one last point on that, you know, as far as posture goes, there's that interesting situation in 1 Corinthians 5 where there's that person who's um, having an illicit relationship you know, and Paul's point to the church is like, you know, what he says to them, he's like, you know, who, are, who am I to judge non-believers? We are to judge those inside the church. He sets a very strong line about, sure about who, we're go- you know, who we're interacting with and, and, and how we do so in that. So, and, um, the reason, and the reason we are, we don't, I mean, people that are non-believers, I mean, that let them, that's their business, what they mm-hmm. do. But this, I think Paul's point is like, look, if we're going to try to be advocating for a way of life which is, Holy, or holy and God-honoring, then we have to make sure our own house is in order, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, it's a scandal to the outside world. I, I think that's actually the big, it's a really big point, too, you know? Mm-hmm. As a Christian, uh, it, that's why I think hypocrisy is so toxic, and is that it's scandalous to people, and they think, mm-hmm. well, how are you, you're telling me that I should live a certain way, and you can't even do it yourself, yeah. you know? No, absolutely. Anyway. So, I don't know, and no one likes a hypocrite, you know that? Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Why don't you read the... Uh, sure, letter 25. 25. I'll get my notes. Uh, says, Screwtape notes that humans are simultaneously drawn to change and to permanence, and God has granted us rhythm to meet both of those desires. His advice to Wormwood is to keep the patient seeking after novelty as a way to both sow discontent and to draw his attention away from the actual pitfalls of his day and onto the vices which society is least likely to succumb. So long as the patient is both discontent and guarding against the wrong threats to his faith, he may run headlong after beliefs that are fresh, new, or exciting. Or basically, this chapter is about perpetuating the fear of the same old thing. thing. Right. Right? It's awesome. It is. It's, it's, it's a great and it's a powerful, you know. Because our entire culture is based on creating a sense of discontent. Mm-hmm. And what, what's one of, the, one of the phone vendors, I won't say who, one of their uh, advertising campaigns from a couple of years ago was the next big thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep, yep. I forget who it was. I, actually, I do know who it was, but I'm not going to say. <laughs> uh, but it was like the idea of you're always trying to create this, you know, but it could be this, you mm. know? And it's ba- like you're saying, it's the discontent of the same old thing. Mm-hmm. And I think since our culture is, I mean, completely steeped in that, would you agree? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Maybe you disagree, friends, but I, my view is that the culture 
in our heart, I think, in some ways, is so completely steeped in this fear of the same old thing, mm-hmm. and the, the grass is greener kind of idea, that the idea of just sort of being steady in your faith and the same old thing is difficult to, to it's difficult to stay with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, you know, if you think of anything else you do in life to, to master it or to, to have it, you know, in, kind of enter into you and transform you, you have to do it for a long time. You do. You know, and, and, and you can get, you know, and then, and then it becomes natural and then it becomes a part of you. And so, um, yeah, to keep us distracted or constantly chasing the latest and greatest is a really great, is a really great um, tactic. In fact, uh, I'm going to read a quote from chapter 25. It says, um, Screwtape says, The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable p- passions we have produced in the human heart. An endless source of heresies in religion, mm-hmm. folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage and inconstancy in friendship. Yeah. You know, all of those things are, are institutions that, that are, are built to be lasting. Right. You know, what's, what was wise 2,000 years ago is wise today. That's right. Uh, wisdom, you know, wisdom does not change. Truth does not change. Marital institutions and friendships and religion, like all of these things are things that, la- you know, that, that are built to last. Right, built to last. Yeah. And, they, and if you are always questioning that, they don't last. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, this idea of heresies. Let me talk about that for a second. A heresy, um, the word heresy is a Greek word, heresios, which means a false teaching. And if you look at the early, the, uh, it doesn't mean necessarily, heresies are interesting, because if you look at the history of heresy, but right, say that five times. <laughs> look at the history of heresy, it's always pretty close, but it's a, like a little nickel off, you know? <laughs> it doesn't seem like much, mm-hmm. but whenever you go in a little, even a little deviancy from what scripture talks about the nature of Christ, for example, as being fully God and fully man, most of the heresies tend to go one way or the other on that. And once you go one way or the other, there's a whole series of consequences that roll out of that. Hmm. Um, when Jesus becomes the great teacher, right, which is the big thing back in the, ni- the 20th century was this sort of like Jesus who was this sort of, you know, wandering itinerant Jewish preacher who would sit around and, you know, care for the poor and talk about being nice to people. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, he did that, but that wasn't his primary mention. He's also mm-hmm. God, and he dies on the cross to save us from sin. That's mm-hmm. the flip side of that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, the heresies are always taking this idea, which we have, and saying, yeah, but, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I also love here, and we, we can talk about this for a second. I also love, the one thing which Screwtape says is, don't ever let them do this. You know, always make them fear of the same old thing, mm-hmm. but don't ever let them ask a very simple question. This is, on, this is the last paragraph, mm. uh, middle of the last paragraph. He says, uh, he want, this is Screwtape talking about God. He, God, wants, as far as I can see, this is Screwtape talking, humans to ask a very simple question. Is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? Mm-hmm. In other words, the question really is, here's the truth, just do the right thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that simple. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes boring, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? But that's what God actually is looking for us to do. Not so much always be looking for the next big thing, but by dealing with, when we talked about this earlier in the series, the reality that's in front of you right now and making the right decision based upon what you know of the truth of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And, answer, and, and making sure, yeah, the right questions are incredibly important. There was this, um, this, this old legend of uh, <clears throat> this town was fearful about people being buried alive. 
in their coffins. And so like they were, so they were trying to figure it's out. kind of a scary thing. Yeah, it would be, it would be terrifying. Yeah. And so trying to figure out a, you know, a solution to this problem of worry of people being buried alive. Right. And one group proposed that they have like a, a ventilator in it and they have you know, food and like a bell or something to kind of like make people know like, oh, if you're in here, we'll come get, dig you out and make the, make the town aware. Mm. And, but it ended up being a really like cost ineffective. That seems really complicated. Yeah, and so, and so the other group said, well, then you just tie a stake to the door right above where the heart is, and as soon as the, co the coffin closed, it answers your question. The person inside there is dead. And the point is that they were asking two very- closed. Yeah, the point is they're asking two very different questions. One, one, the first question was, how do we, you know, how can we tell if they're alive? And then the second question was, how do we make sure they're dead? You know, like, so, so there were answers to two different questions. And so this idea of phrasing and having the right questions yeah. Will will lead you to the answers that you want with kids and giving them, you know, too many electronics. It's you know, the questions are either like, you know, is this righteous or prudent or possible, or will this entertain them? And and depending on the question you ask, you'll get a very different answer. Indeed. So I just think him setting this up, you know, like having this idea of having the questions be what guide you know, it was obviously going to affect the solution. I'm still getting the image in my mind of a person with a stake coming out of the coffin. I'm still getting that. Out I'm that. sorry. <laughs> That's a little graphic. <laughs> they, they teach you in seminary for homiletics. If you use a graphic, if you use an example that's graphic, if you make it too graphic, you're going to distract people because they're going to think about the <laughs> The whole time. So that's Every follow-up right point now. just buzz. Oh, could you, man, yeah. Charlie Brown's teacher or whatever. Oh, <laughs> man, that's funny. Anyhow. All right, so any questions from the, from the group? The, the same old thing concept is the same again. Bridging back to it earlier, so it, shows how Morton Lewis considers it. Because he talked about, in the first letter, or, ordinariness. Yeah, that's right. Terror, or, and I forget the phrase, like the terror of ordinary. Terror of the ordinary. And uh, so you can see the emphasis, again, he's trying to put on, that's a, that's a critical point to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, clearly, as you were saying before, the, the idea of something just being regular and ordinary as something which is difficult for us to accept as just ordinary, right? Mm -hmm. We always want the next big thing. Um, when I was in graduate school, it was interesting. One of the reasons I didn't finish a PhD is because when I was in graduate school, I, you begin to realize, and Austin, you'll see this soon enough if you do your dissertation, uh, but um, you begin to realize that when you do a dissertation, you, you have to find a more and more narrow, narrow, this area of study, which really is only like three people in the entire history of humanity that really cared about that thing. Mm -hmm. And you have to find something which is completely unique. And it's, it's the idea of a PhD. It's new research and mm -hmm. new knowledge. But I, 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 my stomach just kind of turned at that. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to spend two years writing a 500-page document that me and 13 other people might ever read. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. You know. But that's the idea, right? It's just always trying to find a, find a new angle, a new thing. And that, that can be dangerous. You know, I've, I actually candidly feel the temptation in sermon writing because when you approach a sermon you want to you know you want to present an angle of the text that nobody's heard before or you know a, a, a different a new point or you know whatever new study of it and it's um, almost always heresy yeah and you know you, you just have to be really careful because like you know my my desire to say something new or profound or whatever shouldn't be the guiding the guiding rails of what it looks like to communicate the word of god that shouldn't you know that's not the right question mm -hmm. right uh, so you get different answers. Yeah, the, so. And, and at, to that point, that's a good point. The ordinariness of Scripture, what it says, is so profound. Hmm. You don't need to make up new stuff. No, you don't. You don't need to add to it. Because so, when you kind of dig in just to what's there, and particularly when you go into the Greek, which we mm -hmm. do hear a lot, the original language of the Scriptures, it's like, holy smokes, there's so much cool stuff in here. Why would you want to add anything to this? Yeah. Just unpacking what's there is 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 
intellectually stimulating and challenging enough. Yeah. Austin, you had a question? Yeah, I was just going to say, comment? That, uh, the fear of the, of the same old thing or you know, wanting to chase the latest and the greatest, it seems to me is that's kind of where we get all these splintering factions and liberal theological positions and not wanting to put God in a box because hmm. God can't be this simplistic, you know, thing that we've been doing the same. We've got to have some kind of new vision of right. what God should be like and that's just not the case. It's not yeah. the case. He also makes the point that a lot of times in theological method and study, people say, we've got to do a new thing, right? God in a box was the buzz phrase 40 mm -hmm. years ago, I guess. Mm -hmm. But this idea that there's always got to be something new, right? Mm -hmm. Something adventurous, something exciting. And it's, it's typically blamed, it's blamed on the Holy Spirit for people who and try to justify yeah, that's right. it, right? That's right. Well, Lewis said, you know, it diminishes pleasure, you know, like true pleasure, yeah. you don't dwell on pleasure. You're always looking for the next next best thing, and it increases desires. Ah, that's a good point. And that's true for everything, mm -hmm. right? It's true for your job, for your marriage, for your, with your lives with your children, mm -hmm. with your church. If you always want the next big thing, in any aspect, if you're not content, mm -hmm. right? That, that is the source of all sorts of, all sorts of damage and destruction in relationships. Yeah. So that's another whole kettle of fish. Oh yeah, absolutely is. All right, any other comments from the group at large? All right, so uh, 26. Yep. How about if I do 26? Sounds good. You mind? Yeah, please do. All right, uh, letter 26. In this letter, Screwtape distinguishes between charity and unselfishness. He suggests that Wormwood sow seeds of unselfishness during this time of courtship so that they cause marital dysfunction later. This is a subtle chapter. Mm -hmm. through, through unselfishness, each person appears to put the needs of others above their own, but in reality, he's attempting to put others in their debt or begrudge others if they accept the offer. Hmm. Hey, why don't you start off with that one, Father Greg? Well, yeah, I mean, so the word that, that really comes up is obligation, trying to mm. do things for people to make them obligated to you. And it's, you know, it's a power play that people use for manipulation, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll backtrack. Um, you know, this point, this point, you know, there's, there's a whole courtship thing and, you know, the whatever you want dear phase, but, but the way that it's done with charity, um, you know, the honeymoon phase, I guess is what we could call it, that kind of sets up all these expectations of, you know, like, I will, do, I will do all of these things. I'm going to feel like I'm doing them happily for you. So we're going to set all of these expectations up. And, you know, once you get married, uh, it turns out the person that you were dating is not always the exact person that you were married to five years down the road. Wouldn't it be, and it, wouldn't it be terrible if they were? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know? I mean, honestly. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, if, you're, if your expectation while dating is, you know, taking you out to dinner five nights a week and writing you poems, you know, like all that right. stuff, like 10 years into marriage. If I were the same I was when I met my wife when I was 24, Six or so. Maybe. Well, Lord help us all. Lord help us all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. But, I'll but you know, but uh, you know, because what, what he says, what he says is, uh, you know, the the erotic enchantment produces a mutual complacence in which each is really pleased to give in to the wishes of the other. You know, they're actually they are actually at this point happy happy to do it. And so, um, and I have a question here, and I'm actually not going to answer this question out loud, so you all can think about this and ruminate it for yourself, but what are some things couples might do for each other early on in a relationship that they don't do later? Hmm. There's probably a whole host of things, of things, especially as life gets busier and kids come into the picture or careers take off. You know, that, that ability that, 
to be able to serve in that capacity is just limited naturally, I would, yeah. I would think. Yeah, that's a good point. One thing I learned when I, I first became a rector of a church back in Red Bank, New Jersey, when I was there, uh, I had an experience, which I saw repeatedly, in, not in my parish, but just in the people that I sort of were around, and actually in my parish too, come to think of it. But you'd have people that would have, would get married, yay, we're married, we're in love, yay, and they're living together and having a good time, and you know, there's no real responsibility outside of the two of them. Usually you got two incomes coming in, you know. Hmm. It's easy, you know, dinks, dual income, no children. Um, I've never heard that, that's great. You heard that before? No. But then, you know, you have a child, and if mama wants to stay home, which she invariably oh, wants to typically when they're, when they're young, when the babies are first born, and then suddenly the, the husband is no longer the sole receiver of attention, right, from the woman, because now she's tired, she's nursing, and, you know, honey, not now kind of thing. And, but then eventually you, you see this, I mean, I saw it. So many times it was surprising to me, actually, how marriages typically, a lot of times, will break up after the birth of the first child. Not right, not right away. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, honey, you had a kid? Oops, see ya. Not that. Yeah. But, I mean, shortly thereafter, you wind up with, they, they just sort of drift apart because they never learned, they got married um, without the understanding that things are going to change. Mm -hmm and people are going to grow, and life circumstances are gonna modify. And uh, if you are in this idea of enchantment mm -hmm. constantly, and not love, which is self-giving of yourself to somebody mm -hmm. else, it's gonna be very difficult to make that mm -hmm. work. And you know, I, I think, as we always talk about, we're our own best uh, deceivers. Mm. And I think it's really easy to think that we're being charitable when we are being unselfish. I mean, that's an important distinction, you know? Charity is, is doing something and expecting nothing in return. You know, not I'll do this for you, so you'll do this for me. It's not a quid pro quo. And not even expecting recognition for doing it, right? If you're actually being charitable, mm -hmm. you're not waiting for somebody to recognize the fact that you were nice. That's unselfishness. That's not charity. Right. Um, and it's, it's also desiring the good for the other person. Above your own. Above your own. And that's such a rare, you know, even when people are doing acts of service, to, to have it fill all of those qualifications is actually exceedingly rare. It is indeed. You know, and so, and so I really think this is actually a great point, making that distingu uh, distinguishing between charity and unselfishness. Mm -hmm. And the other way to look at it is offering something and then being scandalized when somebody accepts the offer. You know, it's like, well, I'll give this to you if you want. And he take you up on it. You're like, what? I can't believe that somebody, you know, I can't believe that he actually took that. And you're like, <laughs> you, you, you actually offered it, you yeah. know? Yep. Um, I do. I just, I, you know, it's, it, anyway, I think it's a really helpful chapter to think about those things. It is, and this idea of being, this idea of being unselfish with, in, a, in the marriage context he's talking about here, but this could be true of anybody, being unselfish in the context of another person, but doing it really so you can control and manipulate them, mm -hmm. that's the heart of selfishness, mm -hmm. right, the height of it. Yeah, point. Uh, this is the book that I draw from for this idea of obligation. It says, um, kindness from a blackmailer is more like an open-ended loan than a gift. And uh, when talking about obligation, and it says, you know, we all have well-established rules and values regarding how much of ourselves we owe to others and how much of our behavior ought to be determined by a sense of duty, obedience, loyalty. Mm -hmm. But the blackmailers, the ones who would use these things, the unselfish people, never hesitate to put our sense of obligation to the test by emphasizing what they're owed, you know? And, they, and then they'll resent it. And they build up all of these expectations of, you know, they, they basically keep a list of things that you owe them, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and will call you to account or just bitterly resent you. Yep. And, and, and not tell you. And not tell you. That's right. Yeah, or tell you in the most passive possible ways. Yeah, yeah. And, and the really helpful way I've, I've learned to deal with um, 
people who use senses of obligation to manipulate is you just, you know, you ask, where is it written? You know, like, where is it, where was the contract? Where was the agreement? Where is it written that I take care of you or that I put my work and interests and everything else behind what your desires are or whatever else this is? This is something we learn in seminary in pastoral care, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's, that's kind of the defense, I guess, against the person who would try to be unselfish or use obligation as a manipulative tool. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, it's, it's funny. With all of these sort of things, right, the devil wants to keep us in the dark. And in so many things, if you just expose them to light and, and you can look at them in, in the clear light of day, a lot of it just goes away. It dissipates. It yeah. yeah. So anyway. Yeah. It's, it, uh, Lewis says, Screwtape says earlier in the book somewhere, he says, you, you to Wormwood, you young tempters think your job is always to try to teach something new. Mm. On the contrary, our job is to befuddle and keep them in the mm-hmm. dark, to your point, right? Mm-hmm. It was a great quote here. I'm not sure. I'm still kind of getting my mind around this, but I think Lewis is onto something here. I'm not sure what it is, but I'll read it to you. It's in the end of, about the middle of the second paragraph. He says, a woman, he's talking about unselfishness, and he says the difference between the genders of unselfishness. He says, a woman means by unselfishness chiefly taking trouble for others. Hmm. A man means not giving trouble to others. Hmm. I wonder if that, you think that's true? It's a pretty broad brush. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think generally it seems to be true. I know, I know for a fact that it's not always true because yes. I know some couples that have the, the exact reverse. Of course. You know, where, where um, but yeah, no, I, I, think that's, I, think that's abs- I think that absolutely comes out in every relationship. What, you're either one or the other typically is what I've at least well, experienced. And either way, whether, and, and, yeah. whether it's male or female, sure. I mean, the idea of unselfishness being either chiefly taking, taking on other people's mm-hmm. troubles is one way of being selfish, right? Yeah. And another way, or unselfish, the other way of not being a trouble to somebody else. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I thought that was interesting. It is interesting because, you know, there's that, what's the phrase, danger of over-functioning in another person's space. And what that does is that cripples that person's sense of self-respect and it cripples their sense of resolve, creates the sense of obligation we've been talking about that leads straight to resentment. It's, you know, let me do all of these things for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, it's, and it's just like, you know, hold on, right? Uh, and, the, and the people who don't know, how to, don't know how to protect themselves, especially when they're kids and they have parents over-function in their spaces, never learn the skills or habits or, or mm-hmm. you know, abilities they require, you know, that life requires. Yeah. You ever met somebody who uh, somebody did something for and it was a kind gesture and they resented that person for it? Oh, it happens all the time. All the time. Yeah, it's t- kind of a rhetorical question. But I mean, yeah. the idea of being when someone does something for you and uh, and you actually, it makes you resentful of that person. Mm-hmm. Cause, and I think if you stop and think about why, to kind of stop and, okay, noodle on this for a minute, you dig down a, lo- a level below, it's because you feel like that person's doing that to manipulate you. Mm-hmm. You're not control. doing this for me, you're doing this, this for, for you. you. Right. It's, because you can't let go or you can't well, it's, let it's, me it's function. Apparent, or, it's apparent yeah. unselfishness, but the motive is actually completely selfish. It is. Yeah. And then the other side of that line, right, the, 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 um, the one who draws who almost over divides boundaries, right? They, the, the other danger of this unselfishness, the guy's version, I guess, like in this one, yeah. of like, you know, respecting your rights and your spaces, you draw immovable lines of responsibility and they cause fissures unnecessarily. Like they literally divide things because you have your area and I have my area. You know, I know a couple who, um, if there's dishes, like one member of the couple will only do the dishes that they've used, even if there's multiple in, in the thing. And like, draws very clear dividing lines about, you know, I will only take care of my area of things, which works when you're single, 
Right. But you know, if you get into a marriage or family relationship, that kind of that becomes a little bit difficult. What if the one spouse just used paper plates and papers and that, and just threw their stuff in the trash? <laughs> I'll call them. <laughs> a little pastoral help. A little, there, pastoral, a little pastoral help. That's funny. I'll send you, I'll send you a bill. Uh, <laughs> All right. So let's look at some. Anybody have any questions or comments? What are you talking about? What do you think, Paul? Micromanagement. Yeah, it does sound like micromanagement. Yeah, and then in the dynamic of management, that's devastating too. It is. Subordinate activities, self esteem. And if you're, if you, I, I said to people when I hire them, if I have to micromanage you, that I don't need you. Because mm -hmm. I, you know, because I mean, or if it's my, unless it's my fault. But if it, if you're, if I'm micromanaging you because you can't do what I need you to do, then this is a, just mm -hmm. a bad fit, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Right>? <laughs> 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 That's funny. No, I know. Anybody have a comment on this? Um, there's some questions in here. Um, uh, how would you, this is a good question, question number two. How would you define unselfishness, I guess, and how does that compare to charity? How would you define unselfishness hmm. and how does that compare to charity? Charity is a word we, we hardly, we hear the word charity, hmm. we think of giving to something, giving to a nonprofit, right? The word charity is actually a very, very great, good translation of the Greek word agape, which mm. we call love, mm -hmm. L-O-V-E. Charity is a much better translation of that word agape because in English we hear the word love and we think of, emo we think of all sorts of emotions and, and that, but charity is by definition doing something for the benefit of another without the expectation of payment in return. Mm -hmm. You give money to a charity, you're doing it for their sake, mm -hmm. right? So this idea of charity is, it's the Greek word love is actually translated as the word charity in the old translations almost always. But it's a good way to think of Christian love as charity, meaning the willingness, your, your willingness to do something for someone without um, expectation of being, um, uh, it being acknowledged mm -hmm. or getting it, getting it in, in return. Mm -hmm. And so. it's the difference between a positive definition, which is charity, and a negative, which is not this. Right, a negative definition is, is, is just not this. It doesn't mean that there's anything more to it. And obviously, unselfishness here is used ironically, right? Because right. it's obviously very selfish. Yeah, yeah. It's unselfishness, person. which is used for self, with selfish motive. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, awesome. So, to talk about the, the relationship between charity and unselfishness, for me, it's, it's about the relationship that may or may not exist. For me, when I look at unselfishness, it's something I'm doing in regards to someone I already have a relationship with. I'm unselfish with that person in our relationship, whereas the function of charity is something I'm doing. It may be the same action, but the, the underlying current is different, meaning I don't have an established relationship with you. If it's a, a nonprofit that I have a, a keen, you know, uh, um, like ability for, I'm doing a charitable good for them, but I don't have necessarily a relationship with that person. Hmm how I would kind of define the difference between the two while the actions are the same. Right. Okay. So define based on your relationship to the, to the, to the person you're interacting with or organization. Yep. Um, Good stuff. Charity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Caritas. Yes. Right? right? That's right. That is the... Well, let's hope so. If not, if not, Chris, if that's not right, please edit this out. Yeah, I'm, just kidding. Out I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anyway, any other comments from the, from the studio? Any... I guess there's nothing online because we are not online. We're not online, so but we will be soon. All right, good. Well, uh, this has been good. Uh, sorry for the snafu with the uh, mm -hmm. losing our live feed, but we're doing it the old-fashioned way, and we'll post it on Friday, mm -hmm. 22nd. That's so right. 
thank you all for joining us online, for being here in the studio today. And uh, we'll do next week, we'll do chapters 27, 28, and 29. Yeah, that's right. right? Yep. And then the following week will be the rest of the book. That's so right. Two more weeks, mm -hmm. and then we're done with the screw tape letters. So uh, hmm. that'll be good. Yeah, Father Gritter and I were talking earlier today. I taught, taught a book study. Uh, I thought you were here for it, but maybe not. I guess, I guess not. A book study on the book Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But you, remember, you guys read that, right? Everybody's read that when you were a kid. I did a study of it about four years ago during Lent. And man, it's, we may, maybe we'll do that sometime in this kind of I think it'd be great. It'd be really, it'd be really yeah. great. Be really good. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a Christian study of sin and brokenness and redemption. Woo, good stuff, man. Mm. Mm -hmm. Good, good, good. Anyhow, that's for another day. Would you close us in prayer? Absolutely. <clears throat> Holy Father, we thank you once again for this time that we have to find your truths uh, and God to, to mine your word that uh, C.S. Lewis brings to life for us in this book. And God, I pray that if there are areas in which we need to be convicted, God, that you would work on our hearts. And we thank you for the fact that we can continue to uh, remain united as a community, even as we are distanced. Mm -hmm. And we pray for uh, the resolution to this pandemic. Uh, in your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for joining us online. And we will see you soon.